Today we'll be looking at Psalm 22, and as we mentioned just a moment ago in the prayer, it will be verse 9. So we're looking at Psalm 22 and verse 9. Let me read uh, actually verses, let's begin in verse 6, and we'll read through verse 10, and that'll give us a little bit just of the context, and then we'll actually open up at least a portion or the last part of the second part or clause of verse 9. Psalm 22, beginning in verse 6. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. At this point of the psalm, we see the words of our Lord here as he recalls something of his heavenly father's providence over him. In this, he acknowledges God's care over him, even as we see here from the very beginning. It wasn't something that came upon uh, at the latter part of his life, but even from the very beginning, uh, he knew, and as well, God was taking care of him. Now, the reason for these words is because at the scene now of the crucifixion, as he looks out, he is seeing and he's hearing all the mocking and the derisions that is being laid towards him. And of course, as we see there in verse 8, he says, they say to him, but this is really the Lord speaking here, but he's repeating what they're saying. He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. And so they're saying here, basically making fun of him, saying, well, really, you know, God's not his God, and God's not watching over him. God doesn't delight in him, and he's not going to deliver him at all. So in the midst then of those cruel words, our Lord Jesus then says what he says there in verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. So these words that he speaks here in verse 9, and he's speaking them to his father, and he shows here how that God has always been the hope and the object of his hope as far as his providential care is concerned over him. This is why last time we did look at this text, we spent that whole hour, you remember, discussing the idea of divine providence, that 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 care that God has over his creation so that whatever happens and everything that takes place, whether it be uh, towards the ungodly or whether it be towards the godly, it doesn't matter. God is superintending all those things. So there's nothing that takes place without God's acknowledgement of it, permission of it, and not just bare permission either. There's actually a setting forth of all these things in his very decree. And that would also include here the Lord Jesus. And in a special way, there is a care that has been over the life and the events of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And of course, there has been this special providence over all of God's people as well. 
You and I are the object, as we're Christians, we are the objects of God's special providence over this. And of course, that's a great comfort to God's people. That's a great comfort to us, and it's an encouragement to us that even though the bad comes about to us, that all of this is then being handled by God himself. And as the Bible teaches, of course, he does all things well. And one of the temptations that comes upon the believer, of course, is the idea is that, well, is God doing really all things well? Look at everything that's taking place in my life or in the lives of my loved ones. And we, we kind of have to stop and we wonder and we ponder, is this really true? And so our faith here is tested in this idea. Is God being fair? Is he being just? Is he being right? Is he doing well in all things that come upon me or those whom I know? But again, if we're thinking right, and if we believe the scriptures, and even though we have that indwelling sin in us, we, you know, we still have those thoughts, but we can rest assured, brethren, that the reality is God does do all things well. And oftentimes, he doesn't explain his wellness to us. He just does it. And in his mind, and in his, in the, in his providence, and in his decree, it's, it's working out doing exactly as it ought to be. And the same is not only said about us, but it was said as it said said as well of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now the first part, our Lord declares that God was with him at his birth. You notice he says here in verse 9, but thou art he that took me out of the womb. So there was a special handling here by God himself regarding the birth of of Jesus Christ. The second part of this passage where he says, Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. This shows us that our Lord here is confirming and with great hope that God has been with him even while he was quite young. And I think this is a confirmation in the next verse of this very thing. He says, I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. So the Lord Jesus here is very secure in the fact that God really is his God. And the way that he can confirm that to himself is to realize that God has been with him from the very beginning. And so those things that are being said by the crowd there at the foot of the cross are not true. And our Lord takes encouragement knowing they're not true because he knows that God himself has been with him. From the earliest of years, we can see here that uh, Jesus Christ has trusted and he has hoped in God. That's an amazing thing. That even from the very earliest times of our Lord, he has known these things. We need to remember that our Lord is speaking, of course, of His human nature at this point. We know as God, He as essentially being God, He knew all things. And He knew that God was with Him. And all those things that we may think about Him as far as Him being divine is concerned. But what He's referring to now is this fact of Him being a man. 
He is the God-man. And we've discussed things like that before, so we won't go into that. But this is the Lord Jesus hanging here as one who is, the, is both God and man. And so he's speaking here in his manhood, as it were. His childhood, as we would say. Because it's dealing with him as a man here. Uh, Barnes actually says something very interesting about this, and I put this in here because I agree what he says. But he says, uh, this is applied to the Redeemer as a man. It means that in his earliest childhood, he had trusted in God. His first breathings were those of piety. His first aspirations were for the divine favor. His first love was the love of God. This, is how, this he now calls to remembrance. This he now urges as a reason why God should not withdraw the light of his countenance and leave him to suffer alone. And of course, at that time, or any day, I guess, you know, these kinds of things would be disbelieved and, and, and couldn't be explained. And so Barnes goes on to say, and I think a very important thing, he says, no one can prove that these thoughts did not pass through the mind of the Redeemer when he was enduring the agonies of desertion on the cross. No one can show that they would have been improper. So anyway, as we take the text as we see it here, it is saying that Jesus trusted in God, and he's saying it within, again, the context of his temptation as men are out there making fun of him and mocking him. So yes, these things are passing through his mind. Absolutely. Just as it would have been for us. Because he's truly human, just as we are. He's not any less human because he's God. And he's not any less God because he's human. That's, that's the magnificent nature of all of this that we, of course, cannot understand and comprehend. But nonetheless, it's true. So just as we, if we were hanging on the cross and seeing these things and knowing God was our God, we would have to take confidence in that, that they're wrong and God is right. And all that's taking place, all that is transpiring is part of the decree and will of God. Now, the point here is that our Lord Jesus knew this from the beginning or from the very early age. He says, thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. Something here that's very noticeable. He says, thou didst make me hope. It wasn't just that I hoped and he, you know, finishes the rest of the verse. But he acknowledges here that this was of God, that is his father. His father is the one who has caused him to have hope. Now, again, I couldn't explain how all of this takes place and as far as all, and we'll get into that here in a little minute, just a moment, a few, few moments. But I think though, what he's meaning here, at least we can understand to mean here, that God, as he was his God, and taking care of him, this caused him to have hope. So that's what he means here when he says, at least in part, when he says here, uh, thou didst make me hope. Not only was God the object of his hope, God was the source of his hope. 
the foundation of his hope. And we'll talk about that too here in just a few moments. So what was it that gave him hope? Well, we'd say it was God, yes, but in what sense is that is the meaning of that? Well, we could look at it this way, and we're going to consider some of these things in which as he as he thought about these things there on the cross and he reflects back as a, as a man suffering, as he reflects back on this, these are the things that would bolster his hope in God. First thing we would say, we could say, what we might call his supernatural conception. And we discussed a little bit of that last week. As you know, Matthew records for us that before Joseph and Mary actually came together and had relations, the Bible says there that Mary was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And it goes on to say, as, uh, as uh, Joseph pondered what the angel, of course, was telling him, uh, the, the angel again appeared to him and told him that, he says this, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. You see, there was something different here going on that has been, had not had taken place before. This is something that would have been a, a great surprise, not only to Mary, but as it was, but also to Joseph as well. And of course, it would have been disbelieved by anyone who was taking note of this. That was not for God Himself. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 1, in regards to this conception and things, and verse 31, he says, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And then look at verse 34. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So here is a miraculous event. Here is a supernatural event that Mary was conceived not by Joseph, but by that mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. Now just how all this happened and, and what kind of detail is behind all that, we don't know because the Scripture doesn't tell us. But in the providence and in the power of God, it did happen. And our Lord, of course, knew that. And again, it may be a mystery to us, and of course it is, as we said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says there, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. And Paul there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 16, Paul declares this to be a mystery. But he, he puts a, an adjective before that. He says this is a great mystery. Now the word mystery doesn't mean what we probably commonly think of it today. But the word in the scripture in a theological sense means something that is hidden. Something that is hidden. And in this sense here in 1 Timothy 3, as it would be used in the scripture, that theological idea of it, it's something that is hidden 
that has to do that that it's hidden because and it's only hidden because it's or I'm not saying it right here. It's hidden and it can only be made known because God reveals it. I hope I made that plain. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's a hidden thing. It's a mystery. It's hidden. And it can only be known because God reveals it. How would you have known Jesus was born the way he was? That he was conceived in the sense that he was conceived. You would not have known that apart from God telling us. And that's what he means here by this mystery. It's, it was hidden. And it's a great mystery, he says. It's the word mega. We think of mega. Mega big or mega something. That's what the word is used there, and that's what it means. It's big, large, huge. It's a huge mystery that can only be known through divine revelation. So is there any wonder then we don't understand it all? Is it any wonder that not everything, of course, is revealed and is revealed, but what is revealed, we ought to try to understand And while it is revealed of our Lord coming in the flesh, there is, of course, much that our Lord Lord did not reveal to us. God didn't tell us every single detail of the conception there in Mary, did he? We just read the plain facts there in in, uh, Matthew and in Luke, and that's it. No explanation. No point one, point two, point three of how this took place. It's not there. So his conception then is a demonstration of God being with him. So as Jesus is hanging there, as we talked about last week, this is going through his mind. This is in his head. He hears the the jeers of the the people. I almost said congregation. He hears the jeers of the people out there who are congregated around him. And he reflects back and remembers that he had this supernatural, great, mysterious coming into Mary's womb. The second thing would have been his birth itself. And we discussed again that last time as we were looking at the first part of verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. And as I mentioned, one of the Puritans said, I think it was John Trapp, that God was Jesus uh, was Mary's midwife. She, he, he helped in as it were in the birth of his own of the Son Jesus Christ. Thirdly, though, we can see how it's recorded for us that God was with him in his infancy in the scriptures. We know how that you remember Herod at the birth of the Lord Jesus, when he hears of it, the, the, the wise men came and said, Where is this one that's king of the Jews? We see Herod then plotting to try to kill the infant, the Lord Jesus, who at this time was less than two years old. And so God sends, you remember, an angel to Joseph. And Joseph then is told to flee into Egypt so the child would be protected. Now, it's true, God could have just have supernaturally watched over that so he could have turned Herod's Uh, soldiers a different way, but he didn't do that. He used the simple means of causing Jesus to go down into Egypt. Of course, that was a fulfillment of prophecy, wasn't it? 
If you know that passage, I won't take the time to turn there, but it's Luke chapter, no, it's Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 and following. But that was a prophecy that Christ would come from out of Egypt at a time. And of course, there are other things that are revealed to us in the Gospels of the care upon the Lord Jesus, even, even during the last three years of his life. How that as the, you know, the Pharisees were after him and how that he walked among the Jews, God supernaturally protected him. So God, Jesus knows this. And though our Lord here was young, yet he hoped in God. This is, you know, whether this is to be taken figuratively as far as the, you know, the age limit here, I don't, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know those kind of things. But you see, the text says, uh, "Thou didst make me hope when one I was upon my mother's breast as a, as a suckling child." He had hope in God. Now just how that was known and revealed to him and his human nature, I don't know. Again, because the Bible doesn't tell it us. And that, uh, that leads into that nice theological discussion that men have had on how his divine nature communicated with his human nature. And since the scripture doesn't tell us, it's really kind of guesswork. We don't know exactly how it happened or how it was done, but it happened. I'd have to plead what David said in Psalm 131. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. I don't understand it. How that Jesus could be very, very young and still understand that God was his God. You know, there's also this idea in theological discussions of when did Jesus realize that of his mission? How old was he when he figured out his mission type of thing? Did he always know? Now again, as he was human, he still had to have all the properties of man. And man doesn't know everything, does he? So there must have been some sort of communication going on between his divine nature and his human nature. I'm assuming that. I don't know. It's all a mysterious thing. And it's interesting to study. For those of you who, have, who want to have a theological mind, you can grab you some systematic theology books and look that kind of thing up. For here, though, our text of verse 9 says that it gave him hope. So as the crowds are saying, God isn't interested in him. God doesn't delight in him, really. God's not going to deliver him. He takes hope in the fact that God is his hope. Secondly then, let's discuss just for a few moments what is hope in the biblical sense. And you hear people say, well, I hope so. And oftentimes they just say it as a saying. They really don't really have a, you know, necessarily a theological point to it. It's just, just a phrase or a saying. But in the scriptures, though, it is a theological thought, obviously. And we need to think of it in this wise. Faith, of course, and hope kind of go together. They're near kin to one another. So when you think of faith, you can't go far from hope. And if you think of hope, you can't go far from faith. 
You know, even in that definition that Paul gives us there in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, it says there, faith is the substance of things hoped for. So however you might want to describe and talk about what hope is, you can't get away from the idea that faith is involved. And whenever you want to talk about biblical faith, you can't get far from the idea that hope is also involved there. But biblically speaking as well, the ground of our hope is God Himself. The very bottom thing, the foundation of our hope is God. And of course, as He's revealed in His Word, of course. The object of our hope is, of course, God Himself. The psalmist, for instance, tells us in Psalm 42, verse 11. Now, this is a time in which he's going through some trials as well. He says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my confidence, or countenance, excuse me, and my God. It was also the health of his confidence, but that's not what the text says. But Jonah says, he says, Hope thou in God. He's telling his soul here that's going through this great anguish. Look, you need to hope in God. This is where you're hope. When you're downtrodden and you're sad and you're, you feel hopeless, you need to tell yourself, biblically speaking, you need to hope in God. Hope thou in God. That's the example the psalmist gives us there. Another time it said in the scriptures, let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy. There we see some of the reasons why we should hope. Because God's merciful. We have a hope, and that hope is based on the fact that God is merciful. So we should, we can expect hope, not necessarily individually, but we can, in a general sense, expect hope because, he says here, God is merciful. Now, again, there's much that can be said about hope, but basically it is the confidence and expectation that God, whom we, who is the object of our hope, will perform certain things that are according to His divine will. I realize that's more of a theological definition, but it's a good handle how to think about it. It is the confidence and expectation in God to perform certain things that he's promised in his word. And that's where, that's, where, that's where we have to leave it. Because hope's not a guesswork. I hope so type of thing. Biblical hope is far different. It's a confidential thing. Uh, not confidential. It's a con- thing of confidence based on faith in God. So, back now with our Lord here as he's on the cross and he says this, that thou, art, that thou dost make me hope, that hope that we just got through defining when I was upon my mother's breast. And so he's saying here then, my hope and my confidence that you have performed what you promised to do has been there since the beginning. The earliest of age with me. And we see here it consisted in that God was his God and that he had not forever at least or and completely abandoned him. Now we know from the beginning there, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We know he did 
for a season or for a point, for a time. But our Lord Jesus is saying, let's don't, don't carry this out. Don't let it go forever. And the crowds are saying, well, he's not going to be delivered. If he's, if he's the son of God, let him, let him come down for the cross. We'll believe in him. Our Lord's hearing this. And he says, but you're my God from the very beginning. I hope in you. So while they're making all this fuss there on the ground, the Lord Jesus expresses his lifelong hope that God will own him. And he has up to this point, hasn't he? And yes, he's abandoned him according to verse 1. And that according to the divine plan to begin with. Yet Jesus here has hope in God. And that from the beginning. Now remember as well, as we look at verse 9, in fact, this whole psalm. These are the words that our Lord speaks to his Father. So he's on the cross and he's saying these things to God. This is his prayer to God. This is part of his arguments. These are part of his petition that he speaks to his Father with. And he's reminding him that God is his hope. Even in the midst of the great trial and the great temptations that are upon him, even in the midst of God forsaking him, he still clings, you see. While the crowds say, no, this is not true, our Lord says, yes, it is. You're my hope. You're my only hope. He couldn't look out at the crowds and expect sympathy. He couldn't look out at the crowds and expect hope from them, could they? He couldn't even hope in the present circumstances in the sense of what he's seeing there. But his hope has then been on God. It's not existed on man, but it exists on God. And he says here, it's been so from my mother's breasts when it was yet a young suckling. It's amazing, you know, when you think about the life of Christ. Uh, it was one of my classes in Bible college. We had to take a class called The Life of Christ. And, and you deal with uh, from the time he was born or the conception and, you know, until his, the end of his death. That was what this was about. The class was about. Of course, we didn't cover everything. Couldn't cover everything. But it is amazing to think of all the things that transpired that's at least revealed to us in Scripture about him that took place. And if we had the time to go through that, that would be interesting to do so. But in closing this morning, let, me, let us see some things we can learn from this. First of all, I think again we can see something of the wonders of our human nature. And as Jesus, of course, possessed it, and it would be true to us as it is with him. There's wonders to it. In Psalm 139, that famous passage we know, but he says there in verse 13, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in countenance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. That's talking about us. It's talking about us in the womb. 
but it would be so of the Lord Himself too that these words would reflect upon. You notice He says there in verse, uh, uh, what was that? Verse 14, He says, For I am fearfully and of course wonderfully made. The word fearful though is the same word that's used to speak of God as being reverend. Same word. You know, you hear someone called Reverend so-and-so in the sense of being a preacher or a pastor, and he's Reverend so-and-so. I don't use the phrase, but it's not far off in the sense because all of us are reverend in in the sense of being made in the image of God. And this again, our Lord himself possessed. The second thing we learn here is that even from childhood, God has had a special eye upon his elect. Now, his eye is over everything. No doubt. But in the, in the sense of which we like to describe it, there is a special sense of which God's people have been upon His heart, been upon His mind. You know, even Jesus said, or yeah, and Isaiah says that, you know, our, he's, uh, our names are, are, are engraved upon His hands. He's known all about us. He's had a special eye upon us at our conception at our birth, in our youth, even in our old age. God had been with us, Christian, and He had had that special eye over us even when we were unconverted. Even when we were unsaved. Even when we were in our state of rebellion against Him. God still had His special eye of providence Upon us. So think about that. He has loved us at every stage of our lives. Every stage. And this gives us hope then and encouragement. In fact, it gives us great hope and great encouragement. The book of Hebrews, chapter 13. And my point here is that, you know, he's been with us all this time. He's always been with us. He's never forsaken us. He's never abandoned us. And he never will. Listen, if he's been with us, even in our unregenerate days, when we were rebellious sinners against him and in his law, I assure you he's with us now in a state of reconciliation. Hebrews tells us, and again, he's quoting, Paul here's quoting from actually Joshua and the book of Joshua. But he says, let your conversation, that means your behavior or your lifestyle, be without covetousness and be content with such thing as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. You know, I think our Lord Jesus could have taken up those words himself, couldn't he? There on the cross that day. When he hears all of that, and he reflects on the fact that God has been with me from the beginning. So he could boldly say to that crowd who are mocking him, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. And that again, again, is upon us forever. Even in our old age, as 
as our lives begin to wind down, and uh, here I'm 63, and I'm getting, we'll be 63, and you think, you know, I don't I really have a whole lot longer to live, probably. But God is going to be with me even to the end. If I live to be 100, He's still going to be with me. If I live to be 63, if I make it to 63, He still will be with me. Psalm 71, verse 9 says, Cast me not off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength faileth. Psalm 92, verse 14, They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing. Isaiah is told and promised and he, to the Israel, And even to your old age I am He. And even to your whore hairs will I carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. So we have nothing to fear. Third thing, as our Lord, or as for our Lord, as we know from the Gospels, He was delivered, was He not? His hope was not ashamed, or as we would say, His hope was not disappointed. Because we see in the Gospel accounts His glorious resurrection, and now how He is seated at God's right hand. You see, his hope's not disappointed, is it? From his very beginning, even now, they're in heaven. Okay, we'll stop there and we'll pick up verse 10, Lord willing, next time. So may God bless that to us.